If you were an engineer, what would you do? I'm Ollie Gyu and this is a Primary Engineer Podcast. Throughout the series, we'll be hearing from engineers at the top of their game, university prototype teams turning wild ideas into reality, and starting each episode by hearing the engineering ideas of children. First, we've got Charlie from Homefield Prep. My invention was an electric ice cream van that filters rainwater to make the ice cream. And next, Anna and Amelia from St Mary's College in Derry, who are both competition winners. My idea is a swamp saver. The swamp saver is an interactive life jacket for kids and adults that communicates between the users and the parents' friend's smartphone or smartwatch via the swamp saver application. The swamp saver acts as a standard life vest but allows the parent user to set a level where the life jacket inflates. There are four levels, waist, chest, neck and emergency only. For example, a parent may allow a child to play at the water's edge freely but the life jacket will inflate if the child gets above the waist. The swamp saver continually checks the user's oxygen levels using the app on the smartwatch. If a user gets into difficulty, their oxygen levels will drop and create an alert to the parents. This alert will offer a chance to alert the emergency services at the push of a button. My idea is a pram that automatically stops when you let go. This can possibly save many lives in accidents. It works by using sensors, so when whoever pushing may accidentally let go, the sensors will go off and stop the pram. The sensors are under the handles of the pram, so when the person's fingers let go from the handle, they go off and stop the pram immediately. Now, each week, we're sharing a new problem that we'd like you to solve. Can you help out with this one? Hi, my name is Carl Starr. I'm a systems engineer program manager for Millennium Space Systems, a Boeing company here in the United States. I have a problem. How can we make bread in space? This is a challenging problem because there are things to consider. Number one. How can we mix water and flour in space? Number two, how can we generate enough heat safely? Number three, how can we ensure that we have enough power to generate sufficient heat? And last, how do we deal with crumbs in space? Crumbs are very dangerous in space, which is why only tortillas are currently allowed on the International Space Station. Good luck. Who knew crumbs were so dangerous? So uh, Carl would like to know how to make bread in space. Uh, clearly much trickier than it sounds. If you have a plan, send your thoughts to info at leadersaward.com or comment on Twitter. We are at Leaders Award. By the way, up until recently, Carl worked as the mission's operations manager for the James Webb Telescope project. And his new job is fascinating too. So you'll be very happy to hear that he's coming up on the show as next week's guest. In the meantime, I've got someone else brilliant to introduce you to. My name's Andrew Smith, and I am an aerospace engineer for four days in the week, and I work at Rolls-Royce working in future aircraft. And that's not all Andrew does. He's also the man behind the Netflix series Baking Impossible, where contestants have to create incredible and edible feats of engineering. Andrew calls this craft baconeering, and we'll get onto that in a second. But first, let's find out how Andrew got into aerospace engineering. When I was younger, I wanted to be a pilot, and I've always had this fascination with aircraft in general, anything that flies, be it rockets, planes, I mean, even even birds. And I thought I wanted to go in something aviation related. And then I found myself in this incredible role in engineering. So now I get to work on the aircraft of the future. 
what were you like as a child then um you liked birds I guess that was your your first in um were you sort of (laughs) were you sort of a little little mini bird watcher I'm not sure if I was a bird watcher. I'm trying to recall back. I think what I what I was was incredibly curious, and I always used to ask a lot of questions of any adults, be they teachers, parents, and the teachers that I had were fantastic in that they were very patient with me and answered a lot of my questions, but I never really got the answers that I was hoping for, so I was always asking more questions. I wanted to know why, but why does that happen? And that carried me throughout school, really, and even through to university. I've got a big why question for you. Why, as an aerospace engineer, did you end up on the Great British Bake Off? (laughs) (laughs) Great question. So, yeah, back in 2016, I, I should say I've always been a big fan. I've always had a sweet tooth. Being Northern Irish, this comes with the territory as well. In Northern Ireland, we have a sweet tooth. (laughs) And um, both my parents and my gran especially were amazing bakers growing up. So, uh, you know, we always had like a a lovely trifle at Christmas time. My brother makes an amazing kind of pavlova. Uh, But it was only really when I had a kitchen of my own when I moved away from university. And I thought I'd quite like to get into baking myself and got a little bit better at it. Had always been a big Bake Off fan and thought... I kind of fancy a bit of a challenge. So I applied, not really thinking I was going to get anywhere. And all of a sudden, one day, I find myself in the tent in front of, you know, Paul, Mary, Mel and Sue for my first technical challenge, thinking, what on earth have I done here? And let me tell you, it's a very quick way to learn how to bake (laughs) properly. Stuff that you've never done before. Go on Bake Off if you want to get good at baking really quickly. And how did you bring your background in engineering into what you were doing on the Bake Off? Well, it's interesting because there's no saying that cooking is an art, baking is a science. And I would say baking is even a little bit more like engineering. So I definitely brought my planning and precision from engineering into the tent. So I kind of became very well known for having a massive spreadsheet that I brought to the final, (laughs) which had different columns for all the different bakes, color-coded for if it was in the fridge, the freezer, the oven, what my activity was doing, and that enabled me to shuffle all the activities into an order that I could get them done in time. So that was really important. But also the thing that maybe people don't think in engineering is creativity. So we sometimes get a bit hung up on the maths and physics side of things, which are important in engineering, and we use those as our tools. But creativity and problem solving and looking at things from a different perspective is a huge part of what we do to innovate and create new things. And that's exactly what we had to do in the tent as well. You can't just turn up with somebody else's recipe. You have to bring your own recipes to the table that you've developed or that you've had a fun twist on, bringing flavors together. All of that creative side of things and looking for inspiration definitely reads across between the two. You even tried to kind of inject engineering into your final designs, your final products. I did. I, I thought when you go on Bake Off, you've kind of got to tell your story as part of it. So I had some references from home, some references from the musical world. And obviously engineering is a huge part of my life. So I thought, how am I going to bring this out in the final product? So I, I made a gingerbread bridge for my time at Cambridge, um, which had some you know little boats going underneath it, which was great fun. I made a Ferris wheel, which had little mini moose cakes on it to remember kind of times by the beach. And then what I'm maybe most known for is I made some rotating geared pies that all slotted together, uh, which I said were inspired by Leonardo da Vinci. But a lot of people said they reminded me of Game of Thrones. <laughs> that they all clicked together. You turned the bottom one and it all made this illusion of these interlocking gears rotating in a spiral. And that had a lot of 
obviously engineering behind it and obviously looked very engineering like so that was me bringing my engineering personality into the tent and so you decided to take this one step further once you'd left the tent once you'd left break bake off and you did pretty well you decided to invent something called baconeering can you tell us what that is Yes, so baconeering is combining uh, baking with engineering. It does what it says on the tin. And it started off from a weird invitation I got in the November after Bake Off finished filming, where um, I got told I had to make a very special cake for somebody that was visiting Rolls-Royce, but they couldn't tell me who it was, but it had to be engineering themed. So I decided to make a rotating jet engine cake, which had a hidden skeleton on the inside. You could spin the fan blades. And it turns out it was for Prince William who was visiting. So that was an incredible experience. But in making that, it got me thinking, I could actually explain a load of these engineering principles with the baking directly. So that's where baconeering came from. And it's uh, this thing that I've created where I explain real engineering principles using a baking analogy. So it's not just making something in the shape of a, a car. It's not just baking a cake and cutting it out to be like a car. That's not baconeering to me. Baconeering is using meringue that I've made that I've blowtorched to explain how the space shuttle uh, re-entered from orbit. And it's all to do, both of them have to manage heat and it's all to do with little pockets of air. So that to me is the fun thing about baconeering, spotting these links between what I see in the kitchen and what I use in my day job and engineers using their day jobs. So audiences that I've presented this to, they get to have a little edible moment. They get to try some of the stuff, but they're also um, having their curiosity whisked and stirred up at the same time. Oh, very nice. And and so so that was a bit of an aha moment for you. Since then, what's been your best engineer-inspired baking creation? So ever since I made that the jet engine cake, it was great, but it also had a few sneaky, inedible elements within it. So I had a little sneaky structure on the inside to help support it, which you couldn't see, but I needed it there. And I always thought, wouldn't it be great to do something that was 100% from the ground up edible that had some kind of rotating element. So for me, uh, the best thing I did was a a wind turbine cake. So that used some of the same principles that I'd used in the jet engine cake, but this time it was 100% edible and you could spin it at the back. It was a scaled wind turbine. So it had a biscuit bearing with caramel in it. Um, The fan blades were made of candy canes that I chopped up and then welded together over a gas hob. Um, (laughs) Similar to how you'd kind of, so I had to balance the rotor and everything similar to what you did. Uh, you do in the real world. I had a marshmallow, crispy wind turbine tar, uh, and it all sat in a cake at the bottom to hold it all stable. Like I was really making foundations so it didn't fall over. So there was all this micro engineering that was happening. And that was very, very satisfying when I pulled that off. It must be horrible when you come to eat it though. Cause like you've put all this love and like all this energy into making it and then suddenly you're stuffing it down. I know, but you know, we we bake for people to enjoy things. I think it's more criminal if you bake something and it's just there to be looked at and is never eaten. I think that's a tragedy. So I think it's there to be appreciated briefly and then gluttony can set in and we can enjoy tasting the the fruits of the baker's labor. Well, that brings me on to my next point. You know, you spend all this time crafting the perfect, perfectly engineered cake. Does it taste good at the end? Or have you kind of had to sacrifice some of the taste for, um, you know, making it work? That's a really good question. And uh, the answer is it depends what you need it to do. So in both of those cases, uh, with the wind turbine and the jet engine cakes, 
I didn't really have to compromise at all because I wasn't asking too much of the materials. If you go really big, so if you, say, wanted to do a tall gingerbread building, for instance, at that point, you need to start putting in a lot more flour uh, and start Mm. changing the sugar ratio to make it much more rigid. So there's this thing called structural gingerbread, which is used by all gingerbread champions who are making these cityscapes at these. Usually it's American competitions where they make these incredibly vast cityscapes out of gingerbread they will use structural gingerbread which doesn't soften in a humid atmosphere and is a bit stronger and you really have to use your teeth to get through it it's kind of like um rock that you'd buy uh you know by the beach that kind of candy so it's really really solid it is edible but it's not quite as delicious and biscuity and crumbly as a gingerbread man say talking about 10 foot high things you star in a Netflix series, many people will know you from this, Baking Impossible. And this is really sort of a culmination of all of these ideas of baconeering. Tell me uh, about the, the show and how it came about. So in Baking Impossible, we pair together professional bakers and professional engineers in teams of two. and We give them a challenge each week inspired by an area of engineering. So in one episode, it's making edible boats that can float and safely sail down a little river. Another one, it's a gingerbread skyscraper that we put on an earthquake-shaking table. So they have to build them, but we don't just look at them. They have to survive a stress test, which is some sort of functioning test. And uh, I was the creator of the show, and I get to be the head judge on it, which is incredibly fun. And it all came out of some of the live shows that I did. So I always thought that there was a chance with some of the edible demos that I was doing to do something much bigger and really push edible materials to their limit. But I obviously needed a big space to be able to do it. And we we made it happen. We filmed out in Los Angeles in the middle of the pandemic and brought together these wonderful teams who had never met each other before. That was the really fun thing as well, of professional bakers and professional engineers, gave them these outrageous challenges that I helped develop and then saw who, who swam and who sank. When you say push the materials to their limit, did you find a limit? Do you think there is a limit to what's capable? I guess my question is, is there something you want to do that you haven't done yet? I don't think we've pushed the limits of what some of these edible materials could do. And what was exciting in the show is we actually discovered some certain ratios of of materials to say make edible glues and things that were quite unique that the team sort of kept secret. But for me, uh, there are projects that I would love to do. So I would love to make a human-sized edible boat. So I'm thinking kind of a canoe made of chocolate that I could paddle across a body of water. And then at the end, if I'm a bit peckish, I can just start eating the boat. <laughs> Lovely. With that a little for, that for me would be seawater and seaweed. <laughs> yeah, like some salted chocolate, maybe. But that for me is almost, it's almost like a fairy tale. You kind of eat your own transport as you get to the far side. You're, you're, it fuels you rather than you fueling it. It's like an <laughs> inverse of how we normally think about transport. You'll be building a new world for us next where everything's edible, but also structurally sound. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't I don't think I'm going to be invited to design any really important buildings that need to last at the moment. <laughs> but, you know, if you just need something for a day or two, then I think the gingerbread would do. I, I want to talk about some of those videos that you just talked about, which sort of led you to Baking Impossible. Um, I, I saw a video you did about the similarities be- between concrete and caramel, and you sort of alluded to this before, but you know there, there are really great demonstrations that you can make between how, how baking and engineering really do align. Um, so can you tell us about how concrete is similar to caramel? 
the thing that really links them together, because we see concrete everywhere, but often we don't see what's behind the scenes. We just take it for granted. It's in our bridges, it's in our buildings. But actually behind the scenes, if you uh, look inside, often you've got these steel cables. Concrete isn't just concrete. It's often reinforced. And if you zoom into concrete kind of microscopically, you'll see it's made up of lots of little crystals that are kind of held together. And when you push them together, they're very strong. But when you pull them apart, they're pretty weak. And that's actually similar to a caramel bar. So if you make a bar of caramel, it's all these sugar crystals that melt. And then under the microscope, it's really strong if you push it together. But if you try and pull it apart, it's very brittle and it tends to shatter a bit like glass. So the way we get around this, because if we need to make a bridge or something, it's got to be able to push together well. But in the middle of a bridge on the bottom, the material's actually pulling apart if you're moving over it. So what they do is they put these steel cables, which are really good in pulling apart in tension, and they put those within the concrete, which is good at pressing together, and you get the benefits of both materials. And you can illustrate this at home. If you make a caramel bar and you uh, dip some strawberry laces in a bit of caramel and put them on the bottom... When you break the caramel bar, instead of shattering and breaking and falling down, you'll see little cracks appear, but the whole thing will still hold together. And it's exactly the same thing that happens in bridges. If you look at a bridge up close, often there'll be these micro cracks in the concrete on the bottom. But it's not a worry because those steel cables are able to take some of those pulling loads. uh, And so the bridge doesn't collapse. And this is the kind of clever thinking of engineers that mean you don't need 10 times more concrete to make some of these incredible bridges that you see. And what tips would you give then to children or young people who are pursuing a career in engineering, or even those who don't even realise that they want to pursue a career in in engineering? Perhaps they're quite young, but it's something that they're just discovering. I would say there's three things. One is ask questions, remain curious, because that's what leads you to kind of discover it could be the, the job of your dreams or the thing that you're really passionate about. So don't take no for an answer. Curiosity is a brilliant thing and keep cultivating that within yourself. The second thing is you're going to fail. That's inevitable. Nobody has a clean sheet of successes. So it's all about how you manage the failure and what you can learn from it rather than just throwing in the towel. And the third thing is just don't limit yourself really. So in my case, I thought I was going to have to make a decision between two things that I was really passionate about, engineering and baking. But there are probably things in your life that you think you might have to choose between. But actually, just because somebody hasn't done it before doesn't mean you can't carve out a path where you can pursue multiple interests at the same time. So uh, sometimes a little bit of creative thinking is all it takes. Excellent. Well, Andrew Smith, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure to chat to you, Ollie. Thanks. Hello, it's Susan here. I'm just dropping in to let you know all about Stat Wars, the Climate Change Challenge. Learn how you can empower your pupils through data as they use maths and statistics to tackle climate change. Ideal for maths lessons, this leading data competition is available and completely free to primary and secondary teachers. Learn how you can get more involved by visiting statwarscompetition.com. It's proto team time. We're going to learn about a winning idea from the If You Were an Engineer competition and how it's being turned into a working prototype. I'll let the inventor herself introduce this one. Hi, my name's Francesca and I designed the Unicorn Health Bot. It helps the doctors and nurses at the hospital to look after the poorly children. So, the Unicorn Health Bot. I love it. To tell us about the prototype, here's David Napton from the University of Sunderland. 
first glance, it looks like a toy. It's a small unicorn. But the idea is that this can be given to a child who goes into hospital. The unicorn isn't just a toy, but it's, um, it's an interactive device that will monitor the vital signals from a from a patient in hospital so it might be measuring temperature and uh, heart rate and blood pressure and things like that as well but it's the idea is that it's it's done in a very non-threatening way that it's something that a child in hospital can really um, sort of identify with and it'll just put them at ease which is a, a great idea and so you're you're very close to making this a reality and i guess there's a long stage of build-up uh, in terms of preparing how you're going to create the prototype what's gone into those initial stages and you know what has been the outcome so far because it's such a good idea it's a challenging idea as well it won't just rely on one person so the first thing we've done as as you would with any engineering project is to de-risk it to take the challenging parts out and that's about getting the right people around the table so one of my colleagues abdu he's going to be um, leading on this and he very much knows the um, the sensors and the Internet of Things aspect of this to, to be able to deliver that technical detail. But other colleagues will be looking at the design, how the thing's actually made, how it's made that it can go... Um, that it can be robust enough to go into a, a clean setting within a hospital as well. So you know, so it's got to be, you've got to be able to clean it, and um, you know, it's it's it, it's got to uh, be safe in that setting as well. We need computing people around it, and then also you know, it's okay for us to come up with an idea and say, well, there's the solution. But we need to talk to the doctors and nurses who are going to use this as well. And that's where our colleagues from health sciences come in. So when you when you look at the, that original design that you received, do you think you're going to be able to make something very close to or similar? Because I know a lot of the time, you know, changes have to be made, alterations have, have to be made in order to, you know, make the make the product feasible. How close to the original are you going to be able to get it? I think when we unveil the prototype at next year's event, um, I think people will be really pleased and they will see, they will instantly recognize it and they will see that it is faithful to those original sketches. But I'll also hope that people will see that that's, that's evolved, it's been developed, that it's a much more engineered product as well. Because as I'm always saying to people, your first idea isn't all necessarily your best idea. And, it, and it's a case of letting that idea kind of grow and evolve itself a little bit as well and um the refined ideas will come later i'm sure they will yeah i I guess um what this competition shows is how important it is to have many heads and many thoughts involved in the process of designing something absolutely yes to get the best ideas you know I've, i've worked in in design settings for many years now and it's always better if you can get as many people around that table and we talk about something called stakeholders so like i say it's the people who are going to use it the people who are going to buy it pay for it and the people who are going to make it and the end users as well you know the, the patients the children themselves it'd be great to get their view and input as well i don't know what the cool colors or what the cool shapes these days but you know <laughs> we will we'll get a team of people together who do and together all those ideas go in and it will make a much better product and so we can pretty much guarantee it's going to still look like a unicorn at the end i hope so it's called a unicorn health bot so you know losing <laughs> the title excellent dave thank you very much for your time very much appreciate it it's a pleasure thank you Well, I can't wait to see the unveiling of that. A massive thank you to everyone who spoke to me for today's episode. I'm your host, Ollie Giu. If You Were an Engineer is a primary engineer production. Season two has just begun and we're releasing new episodes every week. Remember, if you have a solution to today's problem, get in touch with us on Twitter at Leaders Award or email info at leadersaward.com. 
we want to know how to make bread in space. Check us out, listen to the back catalogue and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And head over to our website leadersaward.com slash podcasts to access loads of extra content. Music